Good morning. It's uh, good to uh, be with you uh, this morning. Let me just open us up in a uh, word of prayer. Jesus, I thank you for this time that you have given us, this space in our calendar to come together today as a church. Jesus, I thank you for your generous people. I pray blessing upon those that are giving today. I pray wisdom and discernment among the leadership of the church of how to be able to invest these resources and unleash them for kingdom change. I pray now that as we look at the word of God, I pray that it will come alive to us, not in just theory, but that you'll do something in our hearts and our souls. And then when we leave here, that we will say, not only were we in the presence of God, but that we believe that you spoke to us personally, and even as a church. And so as we now open up this word, I pray that you will speak to us, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Before I jump into uh, the text, on behalf of the family of churches called the Christian Missionary Alliance here in New Jersey and uh, New York, I just want to say greetings to you. We have about 120 churches uh, throughout New Jersey, New York City, Long Island, uh, Rockland, Westchester, kind of the southern part of New York. And I just want to, on behalf of those, uh, bring you uh, greetings. Uh, We're neighbors. Uh, My wife and I, we live in uh, Basking Ridge. Uh, We've been friends with uh, many of you, and we've also uh, friends and and know many of the people that uh, that you have sent out from here. I want you to know that what you have here is special. What God is doing in you and among you, how God has formed you as a people here in Morris County, what you have is really special. If any of you are visiting and kind of check in, mend them out, I want to encourage you to be able to give it a chance. One of the privileges of my job is that I get to go around and see a lot of churches, and what you experience here is the real thing. So I want to encourage you to be able to uh, stick uh, stick with it and check it out, uh, especially next week as uh, Pastor John uh, returns. Uh, Over the last uh, few weeks, a uh, few months, uh, kind of ending in the last year and the beginning of this year, uh, through a lot of different circumstances in my life and in my family's life and different opportunities and challenges that we faced, I've been starting to ask myself a lot of questions. Questions about really, am I making an impact with my life? Am I, is there any difference in the world because of my investment in what I do? I've actually been starting to think through this question of what is my legacy? Now, yes, I do have a birthday coming up in a couple weeks, and and maybe it means like buying a new car, a motorcycle, a speedboat, or a house, or something in this midlife crisis. But the question that I've really been wrestling with is what is legacy? You see, I think oftentimes we don't even think through what legacy is, and the tricky thing with legacy is that oftentimes it sneaks up on us and we don't even recognize what legacy is and what legacy we leave until it's too late. Here's what I think legacy means. It means showing up. It means making a difference in the right opportunities and do it consistently over a long period of time. In sports, we have a phrase that that goes along with those that we consider legendary in our sport. It means that they're clutch. You see, I love Pastor John. 
He is a great guy. We've gotten to know each other over the last few years. But one thing that I have to say is he has a horrible taste in sports. His teams are just the, the Mets. Really? A Mets fan? And so I, I actually, as I'm thinking through this, I asked a couple of my friends who are Mets fans, and I said, help me unpack this in Mets language, because I know that's what you're used to here, unfortunately. What's clutch? And honestly, this is what he said. He says, I don't know, we haven't been in that many games to know what clutch is. So let me talk to you about my team, the Phillies. I grew up in Pennsylvania, and I am a Phillies fan. So John and I go at it almost in every sport uh, that he has and I have. My two favorite players on the Phillies in recent years, Chase Utley and Ryan Howard. Ryan Howard, great home run hitter. He's the one, cleaner. He gets up there and he belts. And if he hits a home run, I mean, it's going for miles. He clears the bases. And he's won many games. And then there's Chase Utley. His stats aren't nearly as big as Ryan Howard's. But here's the difference. The game's on the line. It's the bottom of the ninth. Two strikes. I want to see Chase Utley at the plate rather than Ryan Howard. Why? Because Utley is clutch. He's delivered in those situations over and over and over again. And I've seen Ryan Howard come in big games at the end. And the game ends because he's at that place. And he just doesn't show up. Chase Utley makes the most of every opportunity that's in front of him. I think that's what legacy is. Paul says that to the church in, in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 5, he says this. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtful, uh, thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Today, I want to be able to unpack a story, a story that's in the Old Testament. Our text actually is the entire book of Esther. So for the next uh, two and a half hours, we're going to go verse by verse, phrase by phrase, and unpack the story of Esther. Honestly, no. I'm hoping to be able to get over and give you an overview of this story, because I think it's pretty remarkable. One of the things that I learned in my study of Esther is this. Do you realize in the entire book, God is not mentioned one time? I think that's intentional. Because I think the author wants us to read through the book of Esther and be able to see a story unfolding and to be able to look underneath the surface and to see all the activity that God is doing. Because how many times in our lives... Do we go through day by day by day, and maybe God doesn't even show up in our thought patterns? But his activity, his presence, is like a current that is moving underneath the surface of our lives. So as I tell the story of Esther, what I want you to do is I want you to look for God's fingerprint, his mile markers, his rhythms underneath the surface of this story. The story takes place in right around 500 BC. It starts in Esther chapter 1 with King Xerxes. He is the king of the Persian Empire. Now the Persian Empire, they are the world dominant uh, power in this, in this time. 
And so he, the king, wants to be able to celebrate Persian culture and the dominance of it. And so he calls for a national celebration. We get one day, 4th of July, he gets like a whole year, uh, about a third of a year, a hundred and some days of celebration. And he creates this party atmosphere. And, and, and part of uh, the first part of the story says, this is how, the te- the, how everything looks, how extravagant it is. And I like this one phrase because it sets the stage for what the story goes. And he says this, that the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. And so here's a party that's getting out of hand really quickly because of all of the alcohol that's there. And so now you have this festive piece infused with a lot of alcohol. Not good things are going to happen when you take those two. The queen was very wise and she says, I'm going off and I'm going to have my own party because I'm not sure what's going to happen in this party that the king is throwing. As he's there, conversation, everything goes to a very vulgar place. Not good things. His friends start egging him on. And the king says, let's call my wife. And I want her to come and I want to parade her among all of my friends so you could see how beautiful she is. And the text actually says, and calls her and says, wear your crown of, uh, your royal crown to this party. Some commentators and most commentators that I read actually seem to say, like, come to this party with my friends and wear your crown, but nothing else. The queen doesn't buy this. She doesn't go and she refuses. Now that puts the king in a very hard place. He's looking here and and now all of his friends are going to him and saying, your wife won't even listen to you? What's that going to mean for when we go home, our wives aren't going to meet you? And they start egging him on. And in his drunken stupor, he issues this decree. He actually divorces his wife, the queen. And then he issues this edict that says that all wives must obey their husbands. That's the difference between a king and a president. Because a president, that rule would not go over very well in the polling numbers. When he becomes sober, he recognizes and says, what have I done? What have I done here? I don't have a queen. And so he issues this this ruling that says, all of the beautiful women in the land can apply. And creates this beauty pageant. This pageant where all of the beautiful women, all the Persian women can go. And as the midst of this story is unfolding, then comes in Esther. You have to know a little bit about Esther. Esther is an orphan. There's no record of anything about her mom and her dad investing in her life. Her cousin, Mordecai, kind of takes her in. Provides that family environment for her. And he encourages her to apply. Go apply for this. She goes in and she goes through all the beautification process and she actually gets further, further along. And as she's doing that, Mordecai tells her, listen, as you're getting more and more success in this process, don't tell anyone about your ethnicity, that you're Jewish. Because people will rise up against and have prejudice and and, and bad things to say. So just don't mention that you're a Jew. Esther actually wins. She becomes queen of the land. And she's there and Mordecai comes and he's standing in the courtyard. And as he's there in the courtyard, he hears some whispers over here of people that are angry with the king and wants to be able to assassinate him. 
And so he gives word to Esther. Esther goes to the king. They investigate, find out that they were actually plotting an assassination. And they stop it. And now Mordecai is is raised up and Esther is raised up, brought closer into the king's court. Do you see God's hand working here? Enter now the villain of the story, Haman. Haman is this, this, he's the prime minister and he has a huge head, huge ego. And as he gets more and more power, he puts this ruling that says that everyone who comes into uh, Haman's presence has to bow to him. Everyone does because they're scared except one person. Mordecai. Mordecai's furious, or Haman's furious because Mordecai won't bow his knee to Haman. He goes to the king. This is how arrogant and upset that he is. He not only wants to see Haman or Mordecai die, but he wants all of the Jewish people to be annihilated. And the king agrees and issues this decree that says in one year from now, all of the Jews in the land may be executed. Whatever you do to them, we will not punish you. Take whatever you want. Mordecai hears about this, and he says, sends news to Esther and tells Esther, this is the plot that's unfolding before you. And then we come to, to, es, to uh, Esther, chapter 4, and, and this, this pivotal point in chapter 4, verse 12, Mordecai sends word to Esther, and Esther says this. She says, I can't go into the king's presence and plead for my people. Because if I enter into the king's presence without him inviting me, I could be pushed out. I could be rejected. I could lose my life. I could lose my position. Everything could be a loss. And so Mordecai sends these words back to Esther. Do not think because you are in the king's house, you alone of all of the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And now Esther steps into this place and she sends work back to Mordecai and says, ask all of the Jewish people in all of the nation to, to, to set aside two days to pray and fast because I'm going to go to the king. She goes to the king. And now you see God's favor resting on Esther. Because when she goes, the king says this, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half of the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come to a banquet that I have prepared. Esther is setting the table to be able to reveal this plan. All of this is going on, and this is the part where you start seeing all of these plot twists. Haman... Now, his, his, his anger against Mordecai is growing. And so he plans to execute uh, 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 Mordecai the next morning. And so he builds this huge gallows. They come together for the banquet. And Esther 
has this feast that's there, doesn't say anything this first night, and then they leave. The king goes home, and he can't sleep. He can't sleep at all. And so to, 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 to get him into a more uh, a restful place, he calls his readers and says, I want to read the history of the Persian Empire. That had to be a real page turner. You know what he read? He read the story about how Mordecai and Esther saved his life. You see God's fingerprint? Of how everything's coming together? He recognizes and realizes that there was no type of celebration for what Mordecai did. So the next morning, he calls Haman in, and Haman thinks that he's coming into the presence of, of the king to be able to get a promotion. And, 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 and the king asks uh, uh, Haman, what should we do for someone who we haven't celebrated all of the good things that he does? And Haman's there thinking, like, finally, I get the recognition that I deserve. And he says that he should be paraded around town on the king's white horse, declaring to everyone, this is what the king thinks of this person. The king looks at it and says, that's a great idea. Do you realize we never did that to Mordecai? And so now Haman has to get the white horse. He puts Mordecai on it and he's walking him through the entire town, praising the guy that he wants to execute the next morning. Humiliation. You see God's hand? That night at dinner, Esther, after the dinner, reveals everything to the king. It says all of the things that Haman was going to do, his plan to assassinate and to kill uh, Mordecai, but also to be able to kill all of the Jews living in the land. And then she steps into it and says, not only are all of these people, but King, I am a Jew. This is my family. The king, again, God's favor, burns with anger against Haman. And right on the spot, orders that Haman be executed. And as he's talking, he looks out into the courtyard and says, how convenient. There's a gallows that someone built overnight right in the courtyard. Now you have, we can perform this execution right here. And Haman died on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. Mordecai is is elevated to the position of prime minister The king reverses the edict and says that all Jews will be able to protect themselves and anyone who harms them will be punished. And the story ends and everyone lives happily ever after. You see, Esther, Esther was clutch. In this whole story of everything that took place, there was something about Esther. Her legacy is a legacy of courage. It's a legacy of confidence. It's a legacy of stepping into a very difficult place that brought redemption and safety and life to the Jewish people. So what can we learn about her story, about legacy? The first one is this. The first thing that we can pull from this is that we have to pursue God's presence in our lives. You see, building a legacy requires us connecting our current situation 
with God's presence. You see, we live in such a fast-paced world. Right now, I know, all of our to-do lists are going, what do we need to do to prep before we go away to be able to celebrate the 4th? It's a shortened week, so our to-do list is even longer. We have all of these things. Where does our kids have to go from this place to this place to this place? And we just get into this rat race, like the, like the, um, the, the hamster wheel of life. And we very rarely pause and reflect to recognize God's presence His activity, his fingerprint in our lives. You see, God is always present in your lives. Whether you see it, whether you understand it, whether you feel it, he's there. Look at Esther. You see, God was there with Esther in those dark times. Those times where she's wrestling with, do I belong anywhere? Those times where she's wrestling with rejection. The times where she's wrestling with, do I even have a place in this world? I'm a minority. And I have no family. In those confusing times, as she begins to to step into her royal position, how does she keep her faith, her identity, and living in a different world with different expectations? The challenge of living as a person of faith in a very secular, hedonistic culture. But God was there. In those good times where she won and had the success and had God's favor. Those are the times we look and we say, yeah, God was there. But just as much as he was there was also in all of the other times. The challenging times. Those times where she had to step into those places where she didn't know the outcome. That's the thing with stories like this. Like it makes sense to us because we know how the story ends. But in those times of challenge, Esther didn't know that. Too often, we don't see God's fingerprints in our lives until we pause and reflect on our past. You see, it's in the pain, it's in the loss, it's in the disappointment, it's in those failures That we have to ask and go back and say, God, where were you during those times? Where was your activity? Where was your presence? My guess is if we take time and ask God to show us where he was in those dark times, in those confusing times, in those painful times, we start to see where he was at work and we never even recognized it as we were going through there. You see, legacy living means that our past hurts, that our mistakes, our missed opportunities, our failures, they don't define who we are, nor do they direct or dictate what our future is going to be. When we look back and we see God's activity in our lives, it brings this area of forgiveness. It brings healing, it brings redemption, it brings restoration. But not only when we take time and reflect and look back at our life, do we see how God works. It helps us to define and recognize where God is working in our lives right now. I think we have to intentionally pause and to be able to look and say, where is God's activity? One of the things that I love about 
Mendham Hills Community Church is the work that you do in Guatemala. When John said that we're going to be praying and releasing and there's hundreds of you that are going over these next several weeks, I'm like, praise God that I get to be here and to be able to see this. One of the things that I love about the mission trips is not just seeing the stories of what God does and, and how lives are changed in Guatemala. What I love about mission trip, and you said it here today, is when you go on mission trips, your sensitivity to God's activity is increased, right? Like those of you who go, you know what I'm saying. Something bad happens and what's the instinct? Right away, let's pray. You look and you see an opportunity. What happens right away? God, what is it that you want us to do to change so that we can meet this need? When bad things happen, there's a pause and say, God, what are you doing? But here's the truth. Our sensitivity is heightened when we're on a missions trip to Guatemala. But God's activity is no different in Guatemala than it is here in Morris County. What if we are so in tune to God's activity that we're just as sensitive here in Morris County as we are when we go to Guatemala? That when something happens, our instinct is to be able to say, God, what are you doing here? When an opportunity arises to be able to look and say, how can I get other people to come in and be able to make a difference here? I really think that our families, that our towns, our communities, our jobs, our neighborhoods, our county, our state will be different if we all live with that sensitivity of God's activity just as we do when we're in Guatemala. I think one of the other things that we desperately need in looking for God's activity in our lives is we need friends to help us point out what God is doing. We all have blind spots, especially when we're in the throes of something really good or something really bad. We ask ourselves, where is God doing? What is he doing? But we can't see God's activity many of the times. We need Mordecai's in our life. You see, I'm not sure Esther always saw what, he was, what God was doing. All of the activity that was taking place. It was Mordecai. Mordecai is the one that said, Esther, do you see this? Do you see this? Do you see this? Do you see what God is doing here? Do you see that you were put in this position from the beginning of time for all of these beauty pageant, the favor that God rests on you, the voice that you have has prepared you for such a time as this? Who's the Mordecai in your life that's walking alongside of you pointing out God's activity and his presence in your life? And then who and where are you a Mordecai for someone else pointing out and saying, do you see God doing something here? Do you see his fingerprint here? Do you see his activity? How do we cultivate that, that sensitivity Next week, uh, John told me before he left, he's going to be starting a series on the Lord's Prayer. Lean into that. That whole prayer is all about recognizing the activity of God in this world. If you're not going to be here and on vacation over the next couple of weeks, watch it online. Prioritize this time and space. Because I think... Our legacy is going to be different once we recognize and see how God is working all around us. But if we're going to really live a life of legacy, it also means that we have to step into God's mission. For Esther, 
The words that Mordecai, I think, are the words for us. That do you believe that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this? You see, if we're going to engage in God's mission in our world, it requires three things. The first thing is understanding the situation that you find yourself in. You see, I think it would have been very easy for Esther just to withdraw to her palace and not know or see anything that was going on around her. She could have lived a very comfortable life as queen, not caused any waves, just kind of went along with the flow. But she understood the situation that she was in. The second, which was we already talked about, she recognized God's presence in her life. She saw the activity of what God was doing and how he was preparing for such a time as this. But the third thing, and this is the most important thing, is we have to step in to the moment that you came to a royal position for such a time as this. What are you going to do about it? You see, stepping into the moment means that we leave the comfort of the known and we step into the unknown. We, we, we leave what is comfortable, what we know, and we step into the awkward. We leave what is comfort of safety and we enter into a time of risk. But it means that we step into those situations. If you're like me, here's what I love about the story of Esther. And what scares me is, is, I don't know if I could do that. Number one, I don't know if I have the platform to be able to do what Esther did. But here's what is great about God's activity, is he always starts small. If you're faithful with small things, as you start to grow and are faithful in those, God will increase your platform and your opportunities for those larger moments. You see, engaging in God's mission means that you leverage your position. All of the things that God has blessed you with, your talents, your wealth, your gifts, your passions, your family, your experience, your expertise, everything that he has given you, your position, where you take your position and then you leverage it with God's presence. And when you leverage your position with God's presence, you see the kingdom of God break through. You see, God has called us as people of faith to be people of change. He's called us to change. I love this illustration. What's the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer? A thermometer reads the temperature of the room. If it's hot, it tells you it's hot. If it's cold, it tells you it's hot. But the thermostat, it does something different, right? It changes the environment. If all of a sudden the, thermos, the thermometer says it's 80 degrees in here, you're going to be falling asleep a lot quicker than you are now. And so what do we do? We push the button. We lower the thermostat so that it changes the temperature and the environment of the room. You see, I think too many times as Christians, all we are is thermometers. Culture's going bad, this is going bad, and all we do is reflect of how bad things are. Or things are going well, we just reflect and say, this is how good things are. But if we're going to live a life of legacy, 
God's calling us to be thermostats where we bring change, kingdom change. That's how we take and we leverage. See, uh, when we leverage something, when we leverage our position with God's presence, things happen that we would never imagine them happening before. A couple of weeks we're going on vacation up to Cape Cod. It's an annual trip we do every year. And a couple of years ago, uh, when the kids were a little bit smaller, we went out there and I went on an early morning run. And as I come back and get ready for breakfast, I am getting ready to walk in the house and I see a flat tire in my car. I'm like, really? On vacation? A flat tire. So I'm already all sweaty, so I get, I get the tire out, and I change the tire, swap it out, put the spare on, and going to run in town uh, later after breakfast and get, it, and, and get it fixed. And I walk into breakfast, and the whole family's there, and they say, Where, what took you so long? I said, I got good news, and I got bad news. I said, the bad news is we have a flat tire. and like, oh. And I said, here's the good news. I changed the flat tire with my bare hands. Insert eye roll, hashtag bad dad joke, and they went on and they finished breakfast. But I did. I did it with my bare hands. And the help of the jack that was in the car. You know what that jack did? It provided leverage. Through a whole bunch of physics and stuff, you put that jack in and you put it there and because of the leverage, I can lift the car more than I can ever do with my hands and my own strength. Double, triple, quadruple the weight that I could lift. Why? Because of leverage. You see, that's what happens. When you take your position, all of the things that God has blessed you with, and then you look and you recognize and see God's presence and you understand the activity that he's about, and you take and you combine those two, You see kingdom movement and you see God do things that you never imagined that you could do, that you could be a part of. You see, here's the truth. God's kingdom, it's going to advance. He said that. His kingdom is going to come. But I think Mordecai's words are really powerful to us. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone will be saved and the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent, this is the key, time and relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. God's going to do what he works. His activity does not depend upon us. His kingdom will come. But this is what he says. But you and your father's family will perish. You're going to miss out on what God wants to do in you. You see, when we fail to leverage God's presence and when we fail to use our positions, we don't see the kingdom of God advance. And when we don't step into this place, the kingdom of the darkness, of confusion, and the pain of this world continues to overwhelm the world that we live in. You see, God calls us to dislodge that kingdom By leveraging our position with his presence. Jesus' word says this. He says that you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill, it cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and then put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, 
Let your light shine before all people in all of those circumstances, both big and as God gives you more, let your light shine so that everyone can see the good works that you do and praise your Father in heaven. See, if we're going to live a life of legacy, we have to understand the presence and activity of God in our world. And then we have to leverage that, our position, to be able to step into those places and see the kingdom of God break through. But here's the coolest part of the story, is we get to do that together. You see, I think oftentimes we think of, of legacy as what I do. But it's not just what I do, it's what we do. You see, Esther couldn't have done what she did if it wasn't for Mordecai. Mordecai was the one that was pointing out, that was coaching and discipling and saying, Esther, do you see all of this? And this story of legacy couldn't happen if it wasn't for Mordecai being able to point those things out to Esther and then Esther being able to live them out because Mordecai didn't have the same access to the queen or to the king. And then she calls on all of the Jewish people to pray and fast so that we're in this together. See, legacy living means that we do this together as a family, as a church. We leverage what God has given us in our communities, in our neighborhoods, and we do it together. So the question that I want to leave us with today is simply this. What is your legacy? How will you pursue the presence of God in your life? How will you recognize the activity of God? Looking to the past, seeing his fingerprint of how he's prepared you, and then looking and saying, God, where is it that you are at work in me and around me in your everyday life? And then when those opportunities come, are you going to step in? Are you going to leverage your position, all of the things that God's blessed you with, with his presence? To be a thermostat where we change the environment of the world that we live in? And then how are you going to do it together as a family? I'll tell you what, you can accomplish a lot as individuals, but when you start coming together, that's when you start seeing exponential kingdom work. This week, this week, I guarantee Everyone here is going to have an opportunity. There will be one moment that I am convinced and I've been praying that the Holy Spirit says, this is the moment for you to step into. And the question that I want you to wrestle with as the band comes and wraps this up is, are you going to be clutch? Are you going to be clutch? Are you going to step into that with confidence because you know that God's presence is with you? Or are you going to take a step back and let the ball go right by? Here's what else I know. You're going to be given a second and a third and a fourth opportunity. So if you let one pass, don't let the second one pass. Because I tell you what, as Paul says, these days are evil. We desperately need the church and people of faith.
to live a lifestyle of legacy that we change the world that we live in. Father, I pray that you will speak to us now and that you will show us and challenge us and move us into a place where we recognize your presence and then you give us the courage to be able to step into those places. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.